You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. Okay, so we're going to talk about purity, personal purity, and, and its connection right, to this idea of revival, right? So revival is not something that we can manufacture, but there are means that we can give ourselves to, right? We, we said last week that there's been a lot of prayer in the history of the world that, uh, that revival has not accompanied, right? People have prayed and revival has not come, but there has never been a revival without prayer, right? In much the same way, when revival comes upon God's people, right, there has been much purity that God has given to his people throughout the history of the Christian church without revival, and yet there has never been revival without a renewed vigor, a renewed desire for a purity of heart, for a personal purity. That when the ordinary grace of God comes and not only saves us, not only right converts us into this glorious new ransomed and redeemed relationship, not only assures us that we are in fact His, but it also sanctifies us. It grows us in grace. It makes us more like Jesus. And when that ordinary grace of God works extraordinarily, people grow in purity extraordinarily. Now, there's, there's sort of two things. Before we jump into answering sort of the question, what is personal purity or what is a pure heart that we have to know? Purity of heart and, and longing live in this sort of symbiotic relationship. And let me explain what I mean. When we are pure in heart, that creates in us a pure longing for a pure God. A longing for a God to the degree that all other longings become stale. They become unsatisfying. They're no longer tasteful to us. And so when we have pure hearts, when we are personally pure, that stirs in us right longing for God, and those longings are the kindling for revival. If there is no longing for God, there can be no expectation of him. Jesus himself, right, at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount said this, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That if we would see him, we must be pure in heart. So here's one way to tell this morning if we need revival personally, or corporately, right, together as a people. When was the last time that you asked yourself, when can I go and meet Jesus? When was the last time you asked that question, when do I get to see Him? If that question is foreign to your heart, if then that means you've grown cold. If we didn't walk into this gathering today confidently believing that we would meet Him here today through song, through sermon, and through sacrament, while hoping to meet Him one day for good, then our congregation needs revival. And so, brothers and sisters, if that question is the bar to clear, then I need revival. 
far too infrequently do I ask myself that question. Far too infrequently am I looking, am I pleading with God for the opportunity to see Him, to meet Him, both in the ordinary graces of a small church in a, in a little neighborhood in a corner of Houston, and in the great grace that will come on the day that He returns. So what we're seeing here, right, is again sort of a symbiotic relationship between longing and personal purity. We need a pure heart so that we'll long rightly for God, right? So that we, we won't start investing our longings in other things and towards other idols, other gods, other things that we, we think will be satisfying, but so that we'll direct those longings to God. But it's also in that self-same longing that God actually gives us that purity of heart. So do you see the cycle beginning to form? personal purity and this longing exist together, feed each other, because in much the same way, the more we long for Jesus, the more we are stirred to purity. And so what is personal purity? Let's, let's try and define it. We're going to go to uh, Mark chapter 7, and we're going to listen to the very words of Jesus himself on the subject. So Mark chapter 7, starting in verse 14, says this, And he called the people to him again, that is Jesus, and he said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand, there is nothing outside of a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. So Jesus says, there's nothing that can come into you and defile you. It's what comes out of you that defiles you. And the disciples are confused, so they ask him about the parable. And this is what Jesus says. Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled? Thus, he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within. And they defile a person. And so personal purity is a matter of the heart. Right? Jesus here tells us That it's not evil outside of us coming into us that's the problem, but rather the evil inside of us pouring out that is the problem. That it's what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. And so to be pure in heart, to have personal purity, is to expunge, it is to remove this fallen nature that lives inside of us. Right? I think far too often we look at evil as something that we import, right? We import evil. It it comes from another place, but we willingly bring it and let it in. And the reality is that evil is something that our hearts export. That they're the source, that that is the raw materials of evil inside of us, and it, it, it flows out from us. This is why Jesus so often, right, speaks to the Pharisees 
all throughout the Gospels, whether it's in Matthew 23 when he pronounces woe over them. What does he say in Matthew 23, 27? He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So also outwardly you appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So what is Jesus saying? Even if the package looks right on the outside, if the heart isn't clean, then we all have the same problem. The need for a pure heart. Where there is no heart purity, there is no outward purity, even if it might look like it. Now, before we move on to asking this question of how do we get a pure heart, I want us to just for a moment ask ourselves this question. Why do you think the Pharisees and the scribes get so much airtime in the Gospels? Do we think that it's simply because Jesus' story needs an antagonist, right? That Jesus is the protagonist and so uh, in order to sort of complete the story, you need a good pro, uh, a good antagonist, right? That, that stands in opposition to Jesus and so we need to make sure we just kind of define them for the sake of story. Or are they primarily there so that we can look and laugh and say, silly Pharisees, just couldn't get it. Right? That's what we tend to do. We tend to spend most of our time when we read about the Pharisees criticizing them without recognizing that maybe the reason they're there is because we need to learn from them. That maybe we should be more willing to suspect ourselves. To suspect that maybe we're not the merry band of Jesus' followers, but that we're the religious hypocrites. And brothers and sisters, this could be one of the main reasons that we feel distant and starved of God. Because we're daily living into religious hypocrisy instead of into the purity of heart that we've been called into. That maybe we don't see God because we're so wrapped up in trying to perform in such a way that we please God. And when we look in the mirror every morning, we recognize that we've failed. And so we get up and we try and we try again. And we scrub the outside of that cup. And yet the inside is filled with dead men's bones. Well, so how do we get a pure heart? Right? If if purity of heart leads us to pure longings, which lead to a pure God, which continues to pour into this cycle of longing and glory and rejoicing in the Lord, how do we get that? Well, here's what the Bible says. Proverbs 20, verse 9. Who can say, I have made my heart pure, I am clean from sin? Job 15, 14. 
What is man that he can be pure? Or who is born of a woman that he can be righteous? Ecclesiastes 7.20, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Romans 3, As it is written, None is righteous, no one, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Now if you're like me, you might still be thinking, yeah, but I'm a pretty good guy. Well, the, the Bible has been very clear for us this morning, right? That I'm not the exception, and you probably aren't either. I love how clear Paul is in Romans. None is righteous. No, not one. Not even one, right? Just in case there was any room for confusion. No man has a pure heart by nature, right? No man has a pure heart by nature, nor can any man produce it for himself, right? Job 15, he who is born of man that, can be right, that he can be righteous. Who is that person? Where is that person, right? As if he was looking out over all the men and women in the world and just said, I, I don't see it. Who is he? Where is he? So if it's something that we don't have by nature, and if it's something that we can't produce for ourselves, how do we get it? Well, this is where Psalm 51 comes into play this morning. Psalm 51, verse 1, this is what it says. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, and according to your abundant mercy. Lord, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. And this is David speaking. Uh, we'll talk about his situation in just a minute. But the first thing that David does, the first thing that he's, he does is he asks God for mercy. Because here's what we, we can know, right? God is a God of justice. And God created the world in such a way that we were expected to walk in purity from the beginning. Of course, we know that that didn't go so well. And so God is justly angry towards sin. There's a wrath towards sin that is just, that is right, because something has gone wrong. And see, so the only thing that can be done in order to escape this just wrath of God is that he would extend to us mercy. David recognizes that, right? He says, I need your mercy. Have mercy on me, O God. Then what does he say? Verse 3, I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned. And done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in, in, in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. So what does David do? He first asks God for mercy, and then he explains why he needs that mercy. Right? He owns up to his sin. 
He owns up to his sin, not just in the particular actions, right? He says, look, I know, I know my transgressions. So one, he knows that they're plural. And two, he knows that there's so many that it's probably not worth listing out because we'd still be reading next year. He says, I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. And he says, it's against you and you only that I have sinned, God, right? So he owns up to it. He doesn't blame the external for what is at its core an internal problem for David, the sin that is within him, right? He goes on to say in verse 5 that he was brought forth in iniquity. That from birth, he has had this within him. But he doesn't stop there, and this is what he prays in verse 6. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you've broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with a willing spirit. And so what does David do? He pleads for God's mercy. He acknowledges that he's complicit, that he's the one solely responsible, and that it's only against God that he has sinned. And then he pleads with God for restoration and for revival, for renewal. Right? David doesn't just confess and ask for forgiveness, right? I feel like that's probably for many of us the content of our prayers or at least it it has been for a long time for me it's like I keep a little tally going throughout the day and I say God forgive me for that God forgive me for that oh that too and then God I'm sure there's some things that um, I didn't recognize in the moment where I sinned and so forgive me for those too in Jesus name amen that's not where David ends his prayer In fact, it doesn't even comprise half of his prayer, right? It's essentially the introduction to his prayer that leads us to this section, this portion, where he asks for purity and for protection, right? So he doesn't just ask for forgiveness, he asks for a clean heart, he asks for purity of heart and the ongoing protection of that purity. So what does David know? David knows that he's not the answer to Job's question. He's not the man who in and of himself can become pure. He's not the man from Proverbs 20 who can say, I have made my heart pure. I am clean from sin. He knows that. But he knows that God can. He knows that God must do it. Right? That's why he says to God this beautiful word in verse 10, create create in me a clean heart. So it's not, hey, use what's already there, you know, just sprinkle a little bit of blessing over it and it'll be fine, right? 
No, make something wholly new in me, something that only you can bring into existence in me. Create in me a clean heart. And so, brothers and sisters, the answer to that question of how do we get a pure heart is answered by David here. It's through a posture of dependence in prayer. In fact, much like last week where we said that revival can't come apart from prayer, in much the same way, purity of heart can't come apart from prayer, apart from us suing God for the grace that He owes us in Jesus' blood. But again, David doesn't stop there. And I love his persistence and the boldness with which he prayed. And if only we would pray with this kind of boldness, maybe, just maybe, we would experience revival in our hearts that would lead to purity. Because he doesn't just want forgiveness. He doesn't just want cleanness. He doesn't just want renewal, but he also wants the joy and gladness of before. Let me hear joy and gladness. What is David saying to God? If you know a little bit about David's spiritual life up to this point, much like probably any of our spiritual lives, it's kind of, it's kind of like this, right? I thoroughly believe that when, when uh, Jesus came and said, I've come to give you life abundant, he didn't mean this, right? He just meant that this is kind of your normal life and that when you meet Jesus, this is what life does because you understand the heights that life can bring and you understand the depths that you can tow. And in this moment, right, David is down here. He's literally at the furthest possible bottom that you could, that you could imagine for a person. And so what he's saying is, God, give back to me what I have known of you in my best spiritual seasons. Give back to me the mountaintop. And some of us this morning, we may be sitting in here and going, you know what? It's been so long since I've been on the mountaintop that I'm not even sure it exists anymore. And you know what? David would have the right to think that way as well in this season in his life. And yet he doesn't. He prays boldly and he asks the Lord to give him back that which he has known of him previously. And then what happens? Verse 13, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. And so again, David reminds us, there's a lot of people out there doing the sacrifice thing, God, but I know that if my heart isn't clean, that doesn't matter. If you don't do this work in me, it doesn't matter. And so brothers and sisters, brokenhearted prayer leads to pure-hearted revival. Brokenhearted prayer 
leads to pure-hearted revival. He will not turn away the sacrifices of our brokenness before him. Isn't that what David plays, uh, prays here? A broken and contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. No, he will accept the sacrifice of broken-hearted prayers and he will accept them, he will heal them, and he will make us new. And so, brothers and sisters, it's clear that only God can give us pure hearts. And now, by the work of Jesus and the power of the Spirit, we see the means by which he's given us a pure heart. Now, here's what we don't understand, right? Or maybe what we don't often take account of. David, in this moment, is looking forward to a Savior. But you and I, we get to look backward. And we get to see Jesus, and we get to read verses like Hebrews 10, 19 through 23, where it says this, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Brothers and sisters, we have this assurance. We have this assurance that our brokenhearted prayers will be met with this kind of glory, this kind of reminder of what Jesus himself has done on our behalf. And so here's another means that we can commit ourselves to when we talk about a purity of heart. First, we long for it. Then we pray for it. That expresses itself in prayer, right? Praying for a pure heart. But it also means that we preach to ourselves the means by which we've already been given a pure heart. That if you are in Jesus this morning, that if he is your Lord and your Savior, then that work has been done for you. And we can hold fast to that confession without wavering because he who promised is faithful. And so, brothers and sisters, it is through the preaching of, the hearing of, and faith in this great gospel that our hearts are sprinkled clean, made true, made pure, as Hebrews tells us. So let's preach this gospel to our very own hearts and to one another's. That is why we gather together week in and week out, not just on Sundays, but in our neighborhood parishes and throughout the week. Not simply so that we can have friends to walk through life with, but so that in our weaknesses we can remind each other that it's not us that's strong, but it's God. So we can remind each other that we have a full assurance of faith, that we have a hope that is not wavering because He who promised it is faithful. When was the last time you did that? When was the last time you woke up in the morning 
looked in the mirror, and instead of criticizing every last wrinkle and dot, you said to yourself that there before you stands a beloved son or daughter of God himself. When was the last time that you reminded yourself that you are one for whom Christ bled and died? You are one that by him has been sprinkled clean and now stands whiter than snow. When was the last time you told yourself that you are one for whom Christ rose in victory to bring to eternal life? When was the last time you told yourself that you are one for whom Christ is right now praying into the ear of the Father directly on your behalf because he intercedes for you? When was the last time You reminded yourself that you are one for whom Christ will come again to resurrect with him, to be with him, and to be like him forever. When was the last time you reminded yourself that you are one for whom Christ is right now preparing a special place in his kingdom? I don't mean that in a self-help kind of way so that you can hit your bench PR that morning or whatever it is CrossFit people do. Right? I mean that in the sense of when did you allow this glorious gospel to remind you that there is something other than what's staring you immediately in the face right now? That there's a promise that's coming to you that's greater than any other thing on this earth could promise to be for you. Because brothers and sisters, when we are captivated by that vision, when we're captivated by that reality, when we're reminded of that gospel, brothers and sisters, that, trust me, will stir a longing in your heart to see Jesus once and for all. You know, it's to my great shame that a lot of times I think about things like it, that, that will come in the future in my daughter's life, in me and my wife's life. Lots of things that I look forward to. And, and by God's grace, I hope they come. I really do. But I don't want to want those things more than I want to see Jesus. Because really, ultimately, and truly, He is the only satisfaction that will meet that longing. And so here's what happens when we talk about personal purity and particularly in the, co- the context of revival, right? Much like we pray for revival, we also pray to God for this purity of heart. And we pray not only that He will bring it to us once, but that he will allow us to live into that reality, that we'll continue to offer him this right worship. And it's as we receive that purity of heart that longing is stirred in us for more and for more and for more. And so we experience him in extraordinary measure. God makes us pure, which leads us to right worship of him, right? Apart from the rituals, but in the heart, which gives us a right estimation of ourselves. And then what happens? This is the last part of the psalm. Verse 18. 
Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. And so what does David say? Revive my heart in such a way that it will overflow into all of Zion. That's Jerusalem, all of Zion. Brothers and sisters, it's only when we plead with God for mercy, acknowledge our sin before him, that we will receive gladly the purity of heart that God gives to those who are broken and who are contrite. That sacrifice which he does not despise. No, he will give us that purity of heart. And to the degree that he does that, and to the degree that we live in that, then he will do good for Zion through us. Because here's the reality. If we want to see revival, not just in our own hearts, and not just in our church, but in our city, we will not transfer a longing for Jesus to our neighbors if we don't have a longing for Jesus. We just won't. We'll try and we'll get our speech down right and we'll say the right words. But if we're not pure in heart, if we're not longing for Jesus, if we don't believe truly in our hearts that the day that we see him will be the most glorious day that we could ever possibly imagine and more, we won't transfer that longing to our neighbors. And so let's pray together this morning for mercy, that he would show us our sin, but that we wouldn't be afraid to confess it because the broken and the contrite heart God will not despise. And then let's sue him for grace because in Jesus' blood, the settlement's been made. And then let's pray that as he revives us, he would revive Zion. He would revive Montrose, he would revive Houston for his glory.